Good morning. It's good to see you on this cold Sunday morning, wet and rainy Sunday morning. I mean, Friday it was 75, 76 degrees and sunny. I was on the lake with shorts and t-shirt. It was glorious. And today, not so much. But man, I'm glad to see you this morning on uh, Sunday. We get together to be with the Lord's people. So take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, the verses that we'll read in just a little bit will be on the screen for you to follow along. But this morning, before we get started, I, I just want to inform you, if you haven't heard, one of our church members, Mr. Powell Goodwin, passed away on Friday, and that funeral will be on Tuesday, I believe, at 11 o'clock. And so we want to be praying for Patsy, his wife, and their entire family. Uh, they buried a couple of their family members in uh, recent weeks, and so we want to pray for them. Also this morning, if you saw me hobble up here, it's because I've got an Achilles tendon issue, and so lifting and trying to be physically fit is really, really good, but uh, it also put, takes a toll on your body, and I'm dealing with that this morning. So just pray that God would help me to be able to stand here for the next 40 minutes. Or maybe you shouldn't pray for that, and we get out early. I don't sure what your... <laughs> What your agenda will be, but I would covet your prayers this morning. The Lord helped me in the first service. It seemed like the longer I preached, the better my ankle felt until I stepped off the platform. So uh, we'll go from that. Well, if you got your place there this morning, I want to talk to you about life's greatest question. I heard about a pastor who was preaching fervently one Sunday night to his congregation. I mean, he was getting after it. Uh, the congregation was with him as he was yelling and screaming and pounding the pulpit. They were, they were amening him and affirming him and shouting back. and It, it was just a, a great time. And as he was winding that sermon down, he was trying to land the plane, he asked them. He asked them a strong question. He said, how many of you tonight would like to go to heaven? And everybody just erupted with shouts and amens and hands going up in the air. And it seemed like everyone was affirming that that question. We want to go tonight, Pastor. We want to be with the Lord. And uh, so everyone was doing that, except there was this little boy up in the balcony as that question went out, and everyone was saying, yes. The little boy never, never said a peep. He didn't raise his hand, nothing. And so the pastor did it again. How many of you want to go to heaven tonight? And again, crowd erupts, and everyone's shouting, hands going up in the air. But the little boy, nothing at all. No facial expressions, no hand in the air, nothing at all. And so the pastor looked up in the balcony to him and said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? And he said, yeah, pastor, I just don't want to go tonight. I thought you were getting a load of people up, and I'm not ready. You know, so people just kind of laughed about it, and of course, that wasn't what he was talking about at all. But I think sometimes when we think of heaven and we think about the idea of going to be with the Lord in heaven, we want to do that, right? We kind of joke sometimes that we want to have our fire insurance. We want to make sure that we don't get into hell, but we're not too excited about getting into heaven, or at least not today. We don't want to go now. It reminds me of that old Kenny Chesney song from back in 2008. And it's crazy that we can say back in 2008 like it's a long time ago, but it was a long time ago when he wrote that song called Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven. Now, that song is not a theological masterpiece. In fact, there's a lot of garbage in that song when it comes to theology. But I think that song conveys very accurately people's sentiment toward heaven. They want to go to heaven, just not tonight. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. And people 
by and large, know a little bit about what the Lord says in his word about heaven. People understand that heaven, is, you know, from the biblical standpoint, is a place that has mansions for its people. It's a place that has streets of gold. It's a place that's beautiful. There's banqueting. I mean, there's just abundant food. It's a, it's a wonderful, blissful place. But they're not ready to go and to be a part of that place because they still love and enjoy this place. And so we got to ask ourselves the question. What is heaven, and is it worth pursuing? The Apostle Paul sort of answers this question in Philippians chapter 3. There in verse 20, he talks about the believer's citizenship being in heaven. In fact, he says it's comprised of real people, and it's comprised of a real place. And he goes on to say that from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so what Paul is saying there is this. Citizenship is in heaven if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And the way you get there is through Jesus Christ. So heaven then is a real place. It is a real people. And it's also about a real person. It is Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. And so heaven is not just a real people in a real place. It is real, or it is with a real person. Heaven is eternal life with him. And the Lord Jesus magnifies this idea in his high priestly prayer there in John 17, 3. He says in this, praying to the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And so when we think about heaven, when we think about eternal life, what we need to understand is that is in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. John, in his gospel, talks about this idea. He conveys it in the terms of eternal life. The synoptic writers, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about it in the context of the kingdom of God. And yet the two terms are not saying different things. They're synonymous terms speaking about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, eternal life is the very life that God has. It's his own life. It's divine life. So when we think of eternal life, that adjective eternal is coupled with life because only God is eternal and only God can give eternal life. Therefore, when we talk about heaven, what we're talking about is eternal life in the kingdom of God. So as we ask this great question, life's greatest question, we're given the answer that it's about eternal life. It's about living within the kingdom of God, not just now, but tomorrow and on into the future. So the kingdom of God is both a present as well as a future reality for all of those who have believed on Christ through the gospel. However, it's not, and it will not be possessed by everyone. God is gracious and God calls people to himself and, and God is willing to give salvation to anyone who would bow their knee to him. But salvation is not conveyed on every person. It is conveyed on those who will come and trust in Jesus, turn from their sins and be saved. And so this is a message that everyone needs to hear. It's a message that everyone needs to understand because there is a time that each of us must do just that. We need to hear, understand, and in faith, turn to Jesus Christ. As we look to Luke chapter 18, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, there's a rich man, a rich ruler, Luke describes him as. He's a religious man, and he comes to Jesus, and he's asking about what we're talking about here. He's asking this question. He's talking about what it means to have eternal life. He asked Jesus life's greatest question. I want us to look at it. 
then I want us to talk about it this morning. Let's begin reading in verse 18. Luke says, And a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you lack, you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter said, see, we have left our homes and we followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's an incredible encounter that Jesus has here with this rich young ruler. Before we get too much further into this story, we need to understand what we've just come out of. So two Sundays ago when we were preaching through the previous passage there, Jesus ended that section with a jarring declaration. Look at verse 17. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. As we were walking through that text and we were looking at what Jesus was saying to those who were self-righteous and, and didn't see the need for Jesus' salvation, he talks to them using the illustration of the children being brought to him that to come and enter the kingdom, you must approach it helplessly, understanding that you have nothing to offer, you have nothing to trust in yourselves, but you simply come and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And so encapsulated into that statement in verse 17 is the truth that one's recognition of helplessness coupled with faith in God, a simple trust in God, is essential to salvation. In other words, you cannot be saved unless you come as a helpless infant to Jesus. And so that it's contrasted with what we're reading here, what we're looking at here in verses 18 through 30 and this rich young ruler. The contrast is the fact that this man is the very opposite of that. He's the antithesis of the helpless baby. Here's a man who was rich. Here's a man who was powerful. Here's a man who was affluent. And before we step any further into that, let me just make, you, make clear to you that there's nothing wrong with being rich, powerful, or affluent, Right? You look through the Bible, you see that Abraham was rich, powerful, and affluent. You look at the Bible and you see that Moses had that, David had that, Solomon had that, Job had that. There were many people in the Bible who were rich, powerful, and affluent. I would tell you this morning that Lydia, who hosted the church in Philippi in her house, was rich, powerful, and affluent. It has nothing to do with those things. The problem with this man is that he trusted in those things. He trusted in his power. He trusted in his prestige his affluence, and his wealth. So as we read through Luke chapter 18, it seems very likely that this man 
was part of the crowd, and he's watching Jesus boldly confront those who were self-righteous. And he sees Jesus tenderly receive and bless the little children. So this man was positively attracted to the Lord as he listened to the teaching of the kingdom and heard this call to faith. As a result, this rich ruler responds to Jesus. Now, I just need to help us understand this morning that every time we are confronted with the gospel and the salvation that Jesus offers and the teaching of God's word, we always are put into a position to respond. We cannot help not respond. We always will respond in one of two ways. It will either be through faith and obedience, or it will be in some sort of rejection. You may say this morning, Pastor, I don't know that people always just reject it. They just don't do anything with it. That is a rejection of the word of God, and it's a rejection of Jesus. There's only two ways, two paths. You're either with him or you're without him. You're either obeying or you are in rebellion. And so this man, here's the teaching of Jesus, is drawn to Jesus through it and comes and asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this, Pharise- or this rich ruler was not like the Pharisee in chapter 10, verse 15 that we looked at many months ago who came and asked a very similar question but that pharisee that religious leader was asking this question as a way to test jesus as a way to put jesus in a spot to trip him up so that there could be criticism that came his way they wanted to come up with a way to compromise jesus and his ministry this man comes to the lord and asks a genuine sincere question because i believe wholeheartedly the spirit of god through the gospel of god was drawing him to faith in jesus and so he asked the question his words lead us to believe that while he had meticulously followed the law and he's living the best he could according to that he had found no assurance of salvation no assurance of life after death so he comes to jesus and because he has resources he has wealth and he has affluence he thinks in 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 a in a way not trying to trip jesus up or anything like that but he mistakenly believes that he can take of his resources and purchase his way into the kingdom what must i do to inherit eternal life that's the question he asks and so after hearing this question jesus then engages the man in a gospel conversation he uses this question he uses this platform he uses this opportunity as a way to enter into a spiritual discussion about exactly what this man was asking what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of god what does it require what is it comprised what's comprised of this kingdom and the entry thereof many times the question people ask first when they begin down this spiritual journey of what uh, contemplating the gospel is to wonder what must i do to inherit eternal life that's why i believe it's life's greatest question and with that it's vitally important that we know the correct answer because this man didn't have the right answer we want to make sure today that we have the right answer to this great question so answering it is we're going to require at least five things of us I want to share those with you this morning first of all if we're gonna answer life's greatest question we must rightly see Jesus we have to rightly see Jesus look there in verse 18 this man comes before Jesus and he asks good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life he refers to Jesus as the good teacher 
Now, obviously, I'm pausing here, and so you may wonder, Pastor, what, what's the big deal about this statement? What's the big deal about this title, good teacher? Now, from our perspective, hopefully we got a little bit of a biblical understanding. We know something about who Jesus was, and we know he was good, and we know he was a teacher. And so it makes sense to put good and teacher together. He is the good teacher. But put yourself in the mindset of the first century Jew. The first century Jew, a good Jew, would have never called another person good. They understood the Old Testament's motif on goodness and how that was solely placed upon the Lord and the Lord only is exclusively reserved for the God of Israel. And so this is a persistent motif throughout the Old Testament. For instance, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is the ongoing motif all throughout the Old Testament, speaking, declaring the goodness of God. And so God has an exclusive claim on goodness, and no man can make such a claim for himself. So for this man to come before Jesus and to call him good teacher would have been taboo. Jews during, during Jesus' day would have never done what he did. Therefore, when this man calls him good, Jesus hears that, and he clues in on that and asks him a following question. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God, he says. And so Jesus here is using his question, using his statement as an opportunity to bring him to a place of confession and faith. He wants to know if this man's ready to confess Jesus as Lord. Because the logical conclusion is that if he is good and the good teacher, then he is God. Today, if we're seeking the answer to life's greatest question, then it's going to rightly require us to see Jesus for who he is. He is the good teacher. He is God. You might feel today like you are uh, just drowning in sin, like there's no hope in the world for you. You may feel like that, you, that, that no one can pull you out of the, the, the mess that you've made of your life. And on one level, you're correct. No one can pull you out of that mess, but the good teacher can. God-man can. Jesus Christ can. So you might not be able to do it, but Jesus can do it. Later on in the text, in verse 27, when the disciples hear Jesus' lament about how difficult it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God, they ask the question, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So we need to see Jesus rightly as we think about what it means to come into the kingdom of God. It will require us to see Jesus as God, the Savior. Second thing that it requires, if we're going to answer this question, we need to rightly understand what God requires of us. So having pushed this goodness question, Jesus then focused on the insufficient goodness of the rich ruler. You call me good? Let's see and help you understand that you are not good. That's the idea of what Jesus is doing here. And so he does this by calling him to consider the second half of the Ten Commandments. These laws speak to the social ethics. It speaks to how humans are to deal and to interact with one another. I don't know if you have all the Ten Commandments memorized or not, but what Jesus is doing here is he lists five commandments, which are commandments five through nine, if we were to look at Exodus chapter 20. Commandments 5 through 10 are horizontal commandments. They flow out of the first four commandments that deal with our vertical relationship with the Father. We're to have no other gods before him. We're to have, uh, uh, honor the Sabbath. We're to honor our uh, um, 
our faith in him. I was going to say honor our parents, but that's on down the line a little bit. So we're to deal with this vertical relationship with God, and then out of that vertical relationship, then we have a framework of how to deal with one another. And so he lays out commandments 5 through 9, and what we see in all of that is there's the standard of holiness. God lays out the standard of holiness in the commandments, and it's all through the Pentateuch, the first five books, five books of the Bible. His standard is holiness. His standard is perfection. Why? Because he is holy. Listen to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. God is holy. Peter picks up on this, and he quotes it in 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. The Word of God affirms over and over again the holiness of God, the perfection of God. Therefore, he's the benchmark by which all of us are judged and gazed. So holiness is what humanity was created to reflect as we bear the image and the likeness of God. We know today that we're not holy, right? We know today that we far uh, fail to, to measure up to that standard. That's because sin has entered our lives. Sin has entered our world. It has broken God's image. It's replaced his holiness in our lives with its sin. And so Paul correctly speaks to this as he writes to the church in Rome there in Romans 3, a passage I quoted last or two weeks ago. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus here is helping this rich young ruler, this religious man. Remember, he testified, I've kept all of those commandments. He's a religious man, and he's helping him understand. He's pointing out to him that he is not a good man. He is a unholy man. And so today, if you're seeking to answer life's greatest question, it's going to require that you rightly understand what God requires of you. And what is that? Holiness. Perfection. This rich ruler sincerely believed himself to be good. Why? Because he professed having the ability to keep all of the commandments. But Jesus is going to make it clear that this man is lacking. He had missed the standard. And just like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus had just told, this man's life was being weighed against God and God alone against the holiness of God. So if we're going to answer this question rightly, we need to understand what God requires. There's a third thing I want you to see this morning. We need to rightly know oneself. Now, I believe that as this man is in this conversation with Jesus and he's hearing what Jesus is saying to him, he's doing what you and I would have done or would do. He's doing a self-assessment. He's think, taking inventory of himself. He's thinking about his Life. Jesus has just listed out these five different commandments, and he thinks about that. He, he begins to contemplate, have I ever committed adultery? No, I've never committed adultery. Ha, have I ever um, murdered someone? No, I've never murdered someone. Have I ever uh, stolen something from someone else? No, I've never done that. Have you ever dishonored your parents? No, I've honored my parents. And so he does this self-assessment, and he probably looked very good, very moral to himself, and I believe his buddies, his friends, and the people who knew him in the community would have testified the same thing. This man is an upright man. This man is a God-fearer. This man is a person who follows the commandments. His sincerity and his confidence, however, were nothing more than moral ignorance, as Jesus points out. So as you read through the commandments there that Jesus lists, what are the commandment? What is the other commandment that Jesus doesn't list? 
What's that last commandment, the 10th commandment? It says, do not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's property. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's donkey. We're to not be a coveting person. That's the commandment there. And so Jesus hears him say what he says about these five commandments. He leaves off one, but he knows that's the one he probably deals with the most, struggles with the most. He saw him for who he was. He was, in fact, a covetous man. And so the Lord does what he does to us. He went after it. You know, I'm not done offshore fishing ever. I've been in the Chesapeake, done some of that stuff, but never offshore. I mean, you know, I'd love to go and fish for a shark, you know, something that's dangerous, right? Great white. You know, I grew up watching Jaws as a kid. You know, I want to get down that little cage. Not really. I probably would never do that. That's nuts. Uh, but, you know, what do you do when you go offshore and you fish for those big fish? You chum the water, right? If you want to catch a shark, you chum the water. You throw the blood, the guts, and the fish parts out there, and then you, you're attracting the fish there, right? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's chummed the water. He's chummed the water for this man. He's trying to get him to a place where he can really get a hold of him. He understands his heart, and now he's going to go after him. So look with me at verse 22 and 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, let me just point out to you this morning. When Jesus says, sell all that you have, that's not how you get saved. Jesus is not telling us this morning that if you want to come into a relationship with him, take all of your worldly possessions, go down to the auction, sell it, liquidate it, take the money, and go down to downtown Richmond and give it to the poor. It's not saying that, right? That's not part of salvation. That's a work salvation. That's not what he's talking about. But Jesus is using this to point to the fact that this man is a covetous man and that his trust and his hope is not in the Jesus he's talking to, but it's in his riches, his affluence, and in his power. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. Again, riches is not the problem. It's the trust in those riches that's the problem. This man became very sad. He wanted eternal life. He wanted what Jesus was offering. But listen, he loved his possessions more than he loved God. He loved his things more than he loved Jesus. He trusted in them more than he was willing to trust in the Lord. It was his materialism that indicated that he did not love his neighbor as he loved himself. Therefore, he's not a keeper of the law as he claimed to be. Simply put, this man was not a good man. And like the rich ruler, you and I are not good people. We have all sinned and fall short. Today, if you're seeking to answer life's greatest question, it's going to require that you rightly know yourself. And Paul says it clear. None is righteous. No, not one. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. If we're going to answer this great question, it requires that we rightly turn from lesser things. We have to turn from lesser things. This man is very sad, verse 23 says. Then in verse 24, we begin to see Jesus' lament over it. Do you, you know something? That when you turn away from the gospel, when you reject Jesus Christ, when you choose the things of this world, which the Bible will tell us are lesser things, for the choosing the lesser thing rather than the greater thing, it breaks the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man breaks the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he laments that. He begins to talk about how hard, how difficult, how, how impossible it is for those who are rich, rich in the things of this world, to enter the kingdom 
of God. In fact, it's so impossible that it's easier for a camel to jump through the eye of a needle. And I believe we ought to interpret that phrase, that euphemism, literally. Some would tell you, no, 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 it's not about a, 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 an actual uh, eye of a needle and a camel going through it. It speaks more of a little door that's outside the Jerusalem wall or the wall that went around the city of Jerusalem. I don't believe you should think of it that way. I think you need to take it literal. Why? Because it's a euphemism to speak of impossibility. And I don't know about you, I struggle, because I have to wear reading glasses, number one, but I struggle getting that little bitty thread through the eye of a needle. And so you can only imagine when I'm on the lake trying to tie a lure on. You know, I'm hit, it's impossible, right? And that's just a little bitty thread. Can you imagine the giant uh, camel with all its humps trying to go through the eye of a needle? It is absolutely, categorically impossible for a man or a woman to trust in their riches and come into the kingdom of God. And so those who hear this are taken back. Matthew and Mark and their synoptic gospels, their uh, referencing of this story, describe it a little bit more than Luke does. Matthew states that the disciples were greatly astonished by Jesus' words. Mark describes them as being amazed by Jesus' words. So the disciples here are still thinking like the world. They're still looking at it from a worldly perspective about the kingdom and how you enter the kingdom. You see, they believe the rich to have better access, to have more access, to have more opportunities. They had it in life, so they alluded or believed that it would afford them the same and better opportunities in the kingdom. And so when they heard what Jesus says, how impossible it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, they're thinking, how in the world? They have affluence. They have power. They have prestige. Why wouldn't that transfer over into the kingdom? And so they were dumbfounded by this statement. But Jesus here helps us understand that the things of this world do not and cannot compare with the things of the kingdom. This rich, young ruler loved his possessions more than he loved God. This rich, young ruler wanted them more than he wanted eternal life. And so Jesus' interaction with him here focused on the man's wealth. Why? Because that's the one thing he would not give up. It's the one thing that he held on to. It's the one thing that possessed his heart. It was his identity, even though he was wanting something more. It's interesting that here's a man who held so tightly to the things of this world, but he also understood that those things couldn't give him what his heart really desired. The deep desires of his heart were not being touched, were not being met, were not being satisfied, but he longed for what Jesus had to offer. But when it came down to that crucial decision, will I choose Jesus or will I choose the things of this world? He chose the things of this world. And Jesus points this out to him. He wants him to understand that to follow Jesus, he has to have a first place in a person's life. So today, if we're seeking to answer life's greatest question, it's going to require that you turn from lesser things. Again, Jesus is not telling us to sell everything we own and become some, some sort of monk living in the middle of nowhere and, and in deep asceticism and things like that to try to kill the flesh in our lives. No, that's not, some, what, that's not what it's about at all. It's for us to say, I don't need those things, but I need Jesus. I must have Jesus above all else. We need to rightly turn from lesser things. There's a fifth thing I want you to see. We need to rightly trust God for the reward. Rightly trust God for the reward. 
hearing this call to turn from lesser things to Christ, Peter emphasized to the Lord and the rest of everyone there that the disciples had left significant things to follow Jesus. He says, we've left our homes. In other words, we've, we've turned our backs on our occupations. We've turned our back largely on some of our family. We've done all of this to follow you, Jesus. Now, we may read this and we may be led to believe that Peter's putting his foot in, foot in his mouth again, right? Because Peter has a tendency to do that, right? And Jesus talks about that people are going to deny him. People are going to walk away from him. He's like, if everyone else were to deny you, I will never do that. And who's the first person to deny Jesus Christ in that whole scenario as he's going to the cross? It's Peter. Three different times. Some of those times by little young girls. He's cussing. I don't know that person. Like that, That's his sentiment. Peter has a tendency to just be spouting off at the mouth. And so we have a tendency ourselves to read that into this text. And maybe he was, but I don't believe in this situation, Peter's running his mouth. I think Peter is beginning to get, beginning to understand what Jesus has been trying to teach for all these months, two plus years, coming on three years now, about the kingdom and about salvation. And the Lord here assures them that no one making this sacrifice is going to be unrewarded. Peter, you are following me, and that will be rewarded. Peter, you are denying yourself the lesser things of this world and that will be rewarded in the kingdom so jesus's point was that to gain life you must first lose your life so when a sinner denies himself when he forsakes his sin that sinner finds the life of god that he created him to enjoy and the kingdom that he was to be a part of see there is reward for god's people both in this life and in eternity and that's what he says verse 30 who will not receive many times more in this time this time this place this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so there's reward here. This reward is comprised of many things. Let me just kind of lay some of these out for us. First of all, first and foremost, it is the reward of Jesus Christ himself. To know God is to know Jesus. To be a part of the kingdom is to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the greatest reward. So when we talk about heaven, when we talk about the kingdom of God, when we talk about eternal life, none of those things have their meaning if there's no Jesus in the midst of it. Do you agree with that? This is the hardest service I've found to preach to. Four Sundays now, we've been in two services, and you guys, too many donuts or whatever you're eating during small group, you guys need to wake up, all right? We're going to start spiking the coffee back here with something stronger, amen? <laughs> with something stronger that's caffeinated, nothing else. <clears throat> Come on. What else is the kingdom and eternal life comprised of? The reward is family. When we think about what it means to come into the kingdom of God, we're talking about family. We're talking about you and I as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about that, we need to understand that these relationships that we have within the local church are in many ways much stronger, much tighter, much closer than even our own blood kin. 
which may seem strange to you. You may think that that's crazy. How could you ever say that? I love my mama, my daddy, my brothers, my sisters, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. I I like all of them. Sure, but when you think about it, most likely not all of them are followers of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to follow Jesus with a hot heart and you want to give to the kingdom and you want to live for the kingdom and you want to preach for the kingdom and you want to pick up your life sometimes and move somewhere else for the kingdom, your family looks at you and say, you're crazy. Why would you ever do that? It's because I have a Savior and a Lord and a family in the kingdom of God and they're my people and those are the people who will stand with you when the times get hard and so our spiritual family in many ways is so much more close than our blood kin family I can say this by and large my family back in Arkansas supports and has always supported our call in ministry and, and our move but they don't always understand it. They, they may support it. They give lip service to it. But when it comes down to it, not everyone in my family really gets what our life has been about. And that may be because we're on different spiritual wavelengths. It may be that I don't have a brother or sister and a family member back home. It could be. So this is my people. Amen? You're my people, and I'm your people. Kara and I are your people. And so the reward is family. The reward is also, reward is also freedom from sin. That we've been made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The holiness of Jesus Christ takes its presence in our life. And so that means there is freedom from sin. That's what Jesus died to bring into our life. That we're no longer shackled to those things. Freedom from sin. Do I sin? Absolutely. But I now have a choice. I now have the ability. I now have the propensity to say no to sin and to walk away from it. There also is a reward of a royal inheritance. He says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? So there is this inheritance that comes through this idea of royalty. Now, I'm not much on, like, I don't get into the whole Britain thing. I I did when King Charles was being coronated and crowned or whatever you call it early last year. I think that was a Saturday morning. I was down in the basement, and I was working on that Sunday sermon, and I had it on. I couldn't hear anything, but I had it on because I wanted to see it. The, the pageantry of all that is, is kind of intriguing to me, but I don't just follow the royals. I mean, I, I just I got better things to do. I got, I got too many things to do to really follow the royals, and so I don't get into all that. But there is something incredible about the concept of royalty. And when we think about what it means to be a child of God, here's what we need to always remember. A child of the king means I'm a prince under the king, right? And you're a princess under the king. Because when we've been brought into the kingdom, we've been brought in as sons and daughters. We haven't been brought in as slaves and servants. We've been brought in as sons and daughters. Now, I think I referenced Luke 15 a couple of weeks ago. I preached on it months ago, but when you think about Luke 15 of the prodigal son, and when he left his father's home, and he finally came to himself in that life of sin and debauchery, his desire was to go back to his father's house, because he understood that in my father's house, my servant, the servants have it better than me, I will go and just be a servant, but when Jesus brings us into his kingdom, he doesn't say, hey, come in and be the waiters at my table, he says, no, pull up a chair, son, because you're sitting at the table banqueting with me, it's a royal inheritance and so we rightly trust God for the reward and one day there's coming 
a time when we will all stand before the Lord and we will walk into that banqueting hall and we will sit down at a big feast and all of us, billions and billions of people will feast with the Lord Jesus Christ, not as servants and peasants. We will serve and set and, and banquet with him as sons and daughters of the high king. Today, if we're seeking to answer life's greatest question, it's going to require that we trust God for the reward himself and the kingdom and the life that he wants to give us. We do this by faith. Luke chapter 18, as you read through it, there's only one person that comes to Jesus and goes away without a blessing, and it's the rich young ruler. It's this man right here. He comes before the Lord. He asks a very quality question, the right question, good question. Enters into a gospel conversation. He acknowledges, probably, <coughs> excuse me, understands his sinfulness, his need for Jesus. He's drawn to that. He sees the inadequacies of the things that he's holding on to. But when it comes down to the moment of decision, the crisis of choice, he chooses the lesser things of the world rather than the higher things of the kingdom of God. He denies Christ. I've had conversations with people over the years, gospel conversations, where We've walked through the gospel. There's clearly a draw from the Spirit of God. They've heard the gospel. They are moving. God is drawing, wooing, bringing them to himself. And we get to that moment of, will I turn from my sin and turn to Jesus Christ? And in that moment, just like this rich young ruler, there's been those things that they could not let go of. I remember not just not long ago, a couple, two or three years ago, talking with a lady who was in a lesbian lifestyle, married to another woman, and clearly God was drawing her to faith and repentance. But when it came down to that decision, will I give up this lesser relationship to follow Jesus Christ? Her answer was no. No. And so today, can I say that she's a follower of Jesus Christ? I cannot. Why? Because she chose sin over the sinless one. She chose to remain in sin rather than being forgiven through Jesus Christ of all her sin. And that could be true of any type of thing that we hold on to that we're unwilling to relinquish in our life. This man went away very sad. This morning, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I would guess that most of us in this room are followers and believers in Jesus Christ. And we've said yes to him. And we didn't walk away sad today. We have the joy of the Lord in our lives. Some of you this morning, the greatest need in your life is to answer positively, unlike this young rich ruler. You need to say yes to Jesus Christ. No to the lesser things, yes to the great high king. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we just thank you for this passage. This whole chapter has been really focused on the call to lost people to faith into Jesus, to turn from sin and to place their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. This morning in this room watching us online, I believe there are some who need to make that crucial decision. I pray that you give them faith. I pray that you give them the ability to say yes to Jesus and no to sin today. Father, I pray that not one person would walk away sad, but instead may they have the joy of the Lord because they did the right thing with their sin. They brought it to the feet of Jesus. And left it there. God, I pray for us as believers that as we think about how Jesus had a conversation with this man, may we be convicted to have those type of conversations 
with people where we live and work and play, there in our neighborhood, in our families, in the classroom, at the workplace, on the ball field. God, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that not just gives lip service to evangelism, but lives it. Our people in our county need Jesus. The people in our state need King Jesus. Help us to do that. This time of response is yours. I pray that our hearts would be open and faithful and respond to the call of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.